Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'm back for my fifth and final episode with Ben Lockwin. We have been exploring in this podcast series how operationalization of compliance can really help drive not only uh, the compliance component uh, in your organization, but make you more efficient as a business. And in my uh, perspective, uh, make you more profitable as a business. This week, we've uh, looked at embedding compliance as a key component to the business equation, forecasting's role in helping plan for contingencies, how prevention beats correction 100% of the time, and operationalizing compliance down to the staff level. Today, we're going to try and tie it all together for you and talk about demonstrating the ROI of compliance. Ben, this is, uh, in my mind, one of the most exciting innovations for the compliance profession, at least at this point, the ability to show an ROI, and I think it's even um, several steps further because uh, it's going to make your company more profitable. There's an organization called Ethicsphere who uh, annually releases the world's most ethical companies. They've been doing this about 15 mm. years, and they've now shown they have uh, data which shows that companies w- which have won this world's most ethical award are four times or four x more profitable than the uh, Standard and Poor's average. They're not more profitable because they're more ethical. They're more profitable because they're better run. And they've more fully operationalized compliance by building it into the business process. With that introduction, though, I would uh, ask you, how would you suggest listeners can think about or go about demonstrating the ROI of their compliance programs? Well, thanks for having me back, Tom. Uh, It's been a great week with you. I think... You know, your opening intro there, as far as the the more profitability coming out of that, it, it raises two thoughts of mine. First, uh, there's a tremendous tendency for people to transform correlation into causation, and you very adeptly avoided doing that. So it's not just because you have good compliance programs that uh, automatically begets more profitability, but having better compliance is an indicator that the, the business is likely better run. There's um, in, in the teaching of correlation to students, there's typically an example used where you say um, that the number of shark attacks that are incurred on beaches is almost perfectly correlated with the sales of ice cream. And, uh, you know, obviously the takeaway there is that ice cream doesn't cause more shark attacks, but ice cream is sold more frequently on warmer days and in summertime where there are more people at the beach and therefore there's a higher probability of encountering a shark attack. So, you know, again, compliance is a good proxy, a good indicator for how well run the business is at all levels. Um, I think I'd like to to share some thoughts on how the compliance suite can demonstrate value to the organization, factor into the business decisions and return on investment, and how to answer questions about proving a negative, um, which I call. So if something doesn't go wrong, uh, then it's not a squeaky wheel. How do you know that something was about to go wrong that you prevented? And uh, sometimes that's very difficult to uh, to put into ROI terms. So I have uh, an example that I'll use from medical device manufacturer. So these are FDA approved devices. So the point is it's a regulated industry and they've been produced in such a highly clean way and to such exacting specifications that they can be surgically implanted into humans which isn't an easy regulatory hurdle to clear 
by any stretch. So it could be cardiac stents or pacemakers, new arterial valves, replacement knees, shoulders. They're produced with a high degree of precision and accuracy, um, both which are different terms, by the way. Now, when these devices are manufactured, there's ongoing monitoring of what's called batch success rate. So this is essentially a key performance indicator. It's really a, a lagging metric. After the batch has been produced, you say how many defects were there. So it's after the fact. But it's a measure of what proportion of a total of a given batch of devices has passed quality assurance specifications. So obviously, you want to have as close to 100% as possible, of course. Uh, now, properly, these are plotted on what's called a control chart. So you can measure differences with tests of statistical significance to see if there's variation that's truly different and what's just random noise. So here's an example. So let's say you're, you're looking at this medical device manufacturing process and you have month-to-month -month success rates of 99%, 98%, 99%, 97%, 99%, 100%. So sounds outwardly pretty good, but if you're making 1,000 devices per month, then you'd have 10 devices failing in the first month, so 1% of 1,000 devices is 10. Then in that example, 98% in the second month, you'd have 20 failed devices in month two, 10 again in month three, uh, 30 in month four, none in month five. So if you do nothing systemic to your manufacturing and quality processes over that time, your, your month of achieving no failed devices, your 100% success rate is random, and you'll have more failures next month. And you can predict this using, like I said, statistical methods. And so likewise for the compliance practitioner, ROI, I think, is not such a hard thing to quantify. If you have accurate monitoring of your processes and outcomes, and you can quantify your non-compliance issues weekly or monthly and develop a numerical trend. These data can be analyzed in exactly the same way as the batch success rate that I mentioned. So then if you use preventive measures, as we talked about, to systematically stop any issues from recurring, whether it's malfeasance, misconduct, fraud, you can then show causality between your interventions and the reduced rate of issues occurring and if need be, assign a dollar value to these if you so choose. Uh, how you go about that is up to you, but that's really the best practice around how you would uh, maximize your approach to demonstrating ROI and being successful at it. And is this something that um, a compliance practitioner really, one thing we really haven't talked about, but I think has been implicit throughout this series, has been the role of senior management. <laughs> Even if it's just... Um, uh, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest sort of role to to point things in the right direction? But to accomplish these goals, how critical in your uh, experience has it been for senior management to be on board uh, with the organization, moving not only the operationalization of compliance down to the business level, but also taking back the information that you just articulated in the ROI and using that as a mechanism for either greater operationalization? Absolutely critical, I think, is the short answer. The, the senior management team, the senior leadership needs to be totally bought in, understand the reasons why it's important, and really espouse it to the organization. And it's not even necessarily just from a freeing up of budgets perspective, but it's certainly uh, a set of psychosocial factors that occur within organizations and human behavior. People follow within the shadow of the leader, and uh, there's lots of texts about the shadow of the leader and people trying to... Um, embody how their leaders act and operate. Um, I think within that context, what's important to leadership and management becomes important to staff. And if the leadership's not bought in, the staff's going to say, well, 
compliance is asking us for this, but my boss and my boss's boss don't seem to care about it and they make fun of it over lunch. So therefore, why should I care? I think um, in any case, if you really want it to, to have sticking power and be effective, you need to have it be something that the leadership is modeling and then the employees see that it's important. Um, and then, of course, from there, good things flow. And then, of course, you can bring your ROI metrics to bear and say, here's here's what we've done in the organization in terms of averting disaster. Um, we had a likelihood of experiencing five issues per month like we have the past 12 months. And now we have three or we have two or we have none. Like I said, uh, if you're able to do some statistical analyses on the data and show that you've you've made that improvement across months, that certainly can be uh, dollar cost avoided, it can be legal action avoided, it can be internal policy deviations that are avoided, and all of those you can assign ROI on. Nobody asks what the ROI is for safety, environmental, and health programs. And you know, likewise, I would say for a safety program, can you prove how many people didn't get injured or killed at work because the, the safety program exists? And I would say because corporate compliance oversees a lot of transactional processes, it's really much easier to equate compliances linked to ROI than it is to link safety, health, and environmental programs to the bottom line. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Ben, because I would have thought that uh, if you show the number of uh, no loss days uh, from on work, uh, that's a great ROI, but you've tied it actually uh, to the services uh, component of compliance. What I really wanted to start uh, or end with rather was something you started with on our first day. And you really struck me when you said work is not done until the paper trail is complete. As a lawyer, I absolutely appreciate uh, what I would phrase as document, document, document. But the way you mm. use that on day one, it struck me in listening to you uh, talk about ROI. That's actually how you help determine ROI is by having that paper trail that not only you can benchmark against, but you can utilize as we have throughout this week with the various techniques, uh, forecasting, prevention and operationalization to use as your roadmap uh, and measuring stick moving forward. So uh, from the regulatory slash legal perspective of the work not being done until the paper trail is complete and is available for auditing, it seems to me that leads directly to uh, your uh, demonstration of ROI. Yeah, agreed. And I think uh, certainly there are cases where there's documentation made that may not factor directly into some metric, but I think if you're properly documenting all that needs to be so, then you certainly have enough available data to make uh, the proper analyses and correct determinations. And then also using that to help forecast, to help remediate, hopefully drive your work to preventive actions. And, um, you know, therefore, like you said, hopefully that begets better corporate performance overall. And you could also find yourself beating out standard and pours by Forex. Well, Ben, this has just been a fascinating series. I wanted to thank you again for uh, taking the time to visit with me. We have been exploring the operationalization of compliance uh, throughout this five-part series, and I look forward to uh, coming up with our next series for Innovation and Compliance, Ben. Thanks, Tom. I look forward to being a part of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Innovation and Compliance podcast with Tom Fox. Embedding compliance in your organization is a key component to the business equation of operationalizing your compliance program. How can you do it? Learn more at fcpacompliancereport.com slash innovation.